0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Bunker Daily, the little digestible data cookie cousin to Wednesday's zettabyte layer cake. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Even for someone like me with a keen interest in looking under the hood of the engine of government and the time and desire to keep on top of events, the Kafkaesque network between the government, its advisors and the companies it employs, especially in the information field, can look like the family tree of the most incestuous group of people of all time. My guest today is the author of The War on Freedom, The War on Truth, and A User's Guide to the Crisis of Civilization, as well as an academic and an investigative journalist. He has been doing incredible work as part of the team at Byline Times, under the broad umbrella Whitehall Analytica, and is here to help us untangle this Byzantine mess. Welcome, Nafiz Ahmed.
1: Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for giving up your time to do this. <laughs> it's, it's quite intense, isn't it, this stuff? It is intense, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> first things first. Can you give us the simplified version of the key relationship that basically form a line between Cambridge Analytica the Vote Leave campaign, and the people the government is employing right now on coronavirus.
1: So we need to shine a spotlight on this obscure little company called Faculty AI, which has played the kind of the real behind-the-scenes role in doing very obscure things around COVID-19, NHS. And it's really difficult to get a handle on exactly what's going on and how it's being done. But when you look at that and you map the connections, you can begin to see evidence of undermining basic democratic protocol in order to enrich a few people and, and hand hand others, you know, data that really belongs to the public. Mm. And you know, faculty, as if your listeners aren't aware, but I'm sure many of them are, was run by the people who were deeply involved in the Vote Leave campaign. You know, we're looking at people like Mark Warner, who is currently CEO of the company, and his brother, Ben Warner, who both of whom were involved in Vote Leave and were basically involved in the data mining side and all of that stuff which we now know, you know...
0: Ben Warner at number 10 now was he at some point.
1: Yes, so so Ben Warner is currently... uh, Dominic Cummings is uh kind of surrogate at number ten. You know, he's kind of top advisor and happened to be sitting in on many, many meetings of the Scientific Advisory Group on Emergencies, which was supposed to be the independent advisory body giving impartial scientific advice to the government. So it's interesting that those guys were obviously involved in, in vote lead. They were very much involved in the modeling and data mining stuff they set up this company faculty ai now in august 2019 we now know faculty was given this unprecedented gigantic contract to basically create an ai lab for nhs x which is supposed mm-hmm. to be kind of like the digital arm of, of the yes. nhs and since then they've had this really charmed existence you know over the last 2 years overall I think it's something like nine contracts that have been given by the government worth over about 1.6 million. And the latest one of those contracts been given by the the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. And according to a statement from the government about this contract, it says that faculty is helping to analyse data in real time, allowing the department to monitor the impact of COVID-19 on local communities, and to respond to emerging issues at pace. Now, here's the problem. It's not just faculty that's doing this. There's a whole spate of companies that have been given kind of a carte blanche access to confidential UK patient information. One of them is Palantir. Palantir is, of course, you know, the infamous tech giant data mining kind of pioneer run by Peter Thiel. You know a big U.S. government contractor which has, that uh, is built. You know mass surveillance mechanisms for the NSA Homeland Security, the Pentagon, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where it's been involved in all sorts of discrimin- dis- discriminatory behavior. Mm. Um, so Palantir has this partnership with faculty. Interestingly, in specific relation to those partnerships, they're only going to get paid one dollar for that big data mining that they're doing and it's interesting is that the partnership they're involved in is basically to build this gigantic centralized government database to process our health data you know our confidential right. health data in the UK
0: and the suspicion is that they're not doing it out of a charitable disposition
1: well of course the question that you need to ask is why would they What 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 are they getting out I mean these are not companies which have a great track record of doing things in the charitable interest. So what is it that they might get? And so when you kind of look a little bit deeper, you know, you get a clue. And, and one of the clues, of course, is that, you know, it wasn't just those companies. There was a meeting in March where Boris Johnson uh, got together with loads of tech giants. and And shortly after that, the government quietly gave access to millions of people's UK health data, to companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, as well as Palantir. And then so we, to look deeper at what was going on there, it's basically very simple. All of those companies had intellectual property rights under those agreements with the government to profit from the data that they were getting access to. Hmm. And in a particular case of Palantir, for example, if you look at, look at their contract for the COVID data store, It permits processing of data, including things like racial and ethnic origin, political affiliations, religion, criminal records, mental health information, all sorts of data they have access to.
0: I mean, presumably, the idea is that it's anonymized and aggregated. Yes, that's what we're being told by the government. And of course. But but we know from the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal that that's precisely what didn't happen.
1: This is the issue. I think that, first of all, how much confidence can we have that when the government says that something is going to be private and is going to be protected, that it really will be? So, of course, the historical precedent with Vote Leave in Cambridge Analytica is that, you know, it it doesn't happen. We don't really have grounds to be confident. The other issue, of course, is that within the loopholes of what we're being told, we've seen that within this government, when the promises that they're making, as they're making them in real time, they're basically lying. So mm. we know, for example, when we, were, we heard all about the NHSX app uh, that was going to do help us with the testing and tracing, and the government was repeatedly telling us that it's going to be fine, it's going to protect our privacy. We had independent analyses by people like, I think, Dr. Michael Veal from, from UCL, and he said this is not going to protect mm. privacy. We're going to protect our data in fact it's precisely the opposite it will enable the creation of what uh, data experts call a social graph which actually allows you to build up profiles on people even with anonymous aggregation that you can actually find ways to backwardly retroactively identify people
0: right so you can you can engineer backwards to find the people that that this data refers to Yes exactly and I think yeah.
1: the other issue there's a third layer of this which is that even if we give benefit of the doubt the other problem is that there are all these other ways of making money out of this kind of thing which can compromise our interests so companies like faculty and palantir will be very interested in building ai models of behavior and they can be sold mm. and that's all very very bad because it means that the government is making policy relying on these amorphous models and lots of private contractors, again, building these models, which are then influencing policy. And it's all very unaccountable. Because they always involve assumptions. Absolutely. Mm. And so, you know, we're, we're faced with this monolith of unaccountable private networks of power, huge transnational companies with access for the first time to private health data. And I think what we need to see is that this is something which companies like Palantir have been waiting for. They have seen the idea of accessing private health data as this huge potential bonanza, which they've not been
0: able to do because mm. of traditional constraints of law. OK, so let me just recap a little bit and, and do the four dummies version. OK, Um for my benefit my listeners are a lot smarter than i am um so problem one the government is giving access to our data to all sorts of companies that by definition as profit making entities will try and uh, turn them into a product yes problem two There seems to be this network of individuals that like to work together, and whenever there's too much light shed on one company, that company disappears and a new company appears, but it's always the same people working with each other. Problem three, a vast amount of money is being allocated uh, at the moment from really our pocket um, to various organizations uh, and we're not entirely sure why and for what purpose
1: that is a that's a brilliant summary and that's exactly what's happening and it's it's a it's a fundamental danger out to, to our democracy it's a mm. fundamental subversion of the nhs you know people talk about creeping privatization this is this is not even creeping i mean this is like they're just
0: it's a it's, it's a, just being done yeah it's not it's not yeah. creeping it's, it's a grab it, There seems to be a huge amount of money being splashed around. Is there any way to hold the government uh, to account? Well I think one of the extraordinary things about this
1: crisis is the extent to which we're watching as very important elements of of uh, checks and balances in our system, such as you know laws around tender and things like that, are basically being breached with impunity and nothing is happening um you know, and it seems that it's, it's uh, the government has created a scenario in which it's very difficult within the current framework to hold government to account without, you know, action, extraordinary action being taken, such as legal actions, such as calls for inquiries. You know, you, we need to take extraordinary action in order to ensure that these laws are now enforced and to hold government to account. So, yes, I believe it's possible. There is a very clear set of standards and best practices and and regulations, which the government should be adhering to and which is transparent, it's not doing that. Mm. So we have a basis to hold the government to account. The problem is it doesn't happen by itself. We need to mobilise. And that means getting our political representatives on the the scene and and mobilising really as citizens and making sure that we are actually heard.
0: Yeah. Could there be legal action?
1: I do. Believe, I believe so. I think there's have um, those decisions been I'm,
0: traditionally reviewed, for instance.
1: I, th- I I think so. I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert mm. in this. Um, but looking at the work of you know people like the Good Law Project and 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 other you know firms which have been doing work in this kind of area already, um, you know, it seems to me that there is ample scope for them to actually extend the kind of work they're doing into these areas because there's very very blatant breaches of things like as you said you know you know tiny kind of front dummy companies which nobody knows about suddenly getting multi-million pound contracts Mm. for for really crucial issues to do with life and death yes and you know it's done without tender
0: okay um i saw recently something about responsibility for data policy being transferred from the Department of Culture, Sport and Media, uh, Oliver Dowden's department, to the Cabinet Office. And I saw separate reports more recently, last weekend, that Cummings and the policy unit are moving into the Cabinet Office, as in the physical building. Is that as dodgy as it sounds, or am I just being paranoid?
1: At this point, I think that being paranoid about what Dominic Cummings is doing, especially in relation to. You know, obscure moves into the into the cabinet office are absolutely important because what we know is that the cabinet office has been a locus of all sorts of this kind of unaccountable planning. All of the kind of stuff about herd immunity, for example, was being was coming out from behavioural scientists that were linked to the cabinet office.
0: Yeah, the policy unit
1: did. Yes, you know, like the you know the nudge unit, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, we know that basically there were discussions about herd immunity going on at that level. Um, We also know that Dominic Cummings and Ben Warner were involved in different SAGE meetings. um, And, you know, I did a story where I actually tracked some of those meetings and I discovered that they continuously continuously surfaced at meetings around herd immunity and modelling and things like that, which of course, uh, ben Warner's brother Mark was deeply involved in at faculty. Yeah. So all of that gives us an indication that when Dominic Cummings starts doing these things, you know, things are happening. You know, we need to kind of pay very close attention to exactly what's going to emerge from those kind of, you know, seemingly innocuous movements. Mm.
0: We have the US elections coming up this uh, autumn. Now with traditional rallies and canvassing sidelined because of the pandemic this sort of data mining data analysis targeting electronic campaigning becomes doubly important doesn't it what 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 should we look out for
1: yes i think we need to look out for many of the same things that we saw in the run-up to the vote leave campaign social media analysis manipulation of information um so I think we're going to see more of that. Definitely, we will see. I think we will see an evolution of the methods that we saw being used by companies like Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. But I think you know we, the, the reality is is that people are awake to this now, and so it will it won't be easy for them to simply do this and hoodwink people and
0: hope that people don't notice. Mm. Is there, I mean, is there a sense that as long as all the parties have access to these methods? It's not a problem.
1: I think one of the issues here is that if you look at the way in which the Labour Party operates, for example, they haven't invested in this area because that's not where um, the party is interested in attempting to engage
0: with the public. Yes, it's been spent, it's spent many years boasting about sort of membership numbers, um, you know, thinking that people knocking on doors is the thing that's going to make... The difference against the evidence that actually it's other stuff that makes the difference. It's money. I I think think there's there's a sense
1: in which you're looking if you're looking at someone like Cummings, who you know is is an absolute ideologue. It's something he's obsessed with. He's obsessed with AI, machine learning, the power of using mathematical modeling to manipulate populations um, and to advance political agendas.
0: On a slight tangent. Uh, you recently wrote a fascinating piece that the government may in fact still be pursuing a herd immunity strategy of sorts. Can you explain that briefly?
1: Yes, so in the piece that I wrote, I was looking at SAGE documents which um, indicated that there were discussions around herd immunity or related to herd immunity long after it had been decided that you know, at least publicly decided, or t- we were told, that herd immunity was no longer a policy of government. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that the key area that the government appears to be interested in is this idea of kind of asymptomatic infections. And the reason this is significant is because it's quite possible that more people have actually got the virus. And the reason the government is interested in this because if more people have the virus, then they can say that, well, actually, we're moving towards a situation where once we have a sufficiently large number of people who've had the virus, then the rest of the population is going to be essentially immune.
0: And also it means the virus is less dangerous. De facto, it kills fewer people per the number that become infected, basically.
1: That's right. So what's disturbing about the government's approach is that the, the two SAGE advisors who uh, found minutes of a meeting Um, as well as uh, a paper that was submitted to SAGE. And those two advisors had just a month earlier written a paper in which they had elaborated on a theory about herd immunity, which they themselves admitted basically had no evidence for it. But in their theory, they suggested that COVID-19 might go through this pathway of basically being around through successive waves, as many as five or more waves through which it would run through the population and over that process its kind of its impact would be slowly slowly reduced yeah and then they speculated that this might have been what happened with the common cold and the flu so eventually mm-hmm. you know after maybe 5 years or so it, it would become like another normal virus yeah 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 this is of course really extraordinary because when i spoke to other epidemiologists about this they were quite shocked with the idea. Um, they said, for example, that this would if you followed this path, you would inevitably have large numbers of death over a prolonged period of time. Um, and what's worse is that there really isn't any evidence about how the common cold and flu actually became the common cold
0: and yeah, flu. Yeah. So it, that hypothesis was pure speculation. We really don't know. And there is some, uh, there is even some evidence to the contrary, isn't it? Because the the Spanish flu epidemic uh, was much more dangerous in its second inter- iteration than it was in its first. That's right, and of course, you know, the,
1: the I mean, the COVID nineteen is a different type of virus. You know, it's uh, it's a coronavirus. It's not it's not a it's not a flu virus. Um, so there are you know there are distinctions that we need to bear in mind. But I think that the overall reality is that we're having these these the the government working with a select group of scientists and i think a lot of scientists that i've spoken to you know people at UCL people at Harvard people at uh, Cambridge and Oxford who who are not advising the government have expressed concerns about the fact that there is this very closed circle you have these ideas about herd immunity They they don't seem to be letting them go. And it very well fits the ideology that we see articulated by Dominic Cummings over the years, which involves things like natural selection, genetics, um, you know, like like his very controversial thesis about the link between genetics and IQ, which he articulated in 2013, Mm. and so on and so forth, which indicates part of a wider ideology um, of, you know, basically seeing us in this kind of Darwinian evolutionary struggle
0: Seeing us as, as a herd <laughs>
1: it, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's just not appropriate it's just, this, is, this, is,
0: this is how We're making policy now, it's absolutely Bizarre. Mm. Nafis, we're almost out Of time, a couple of quick uh, Fire questions for you um, How annoying Is it to be regularly la- labelled As a conspiracist Simply for thinking more broadly And testing hypotheses and poking Things more conventional journalists Haven't thought to poke <laughs> or have so you, or have you made your peace uh, peace with it now?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've totally made peace with that. I think handed response uh that that you get when people have basically no answer um, and, and it's, it's obviously it's a form of deflection. I think on the one hand, it's important that we do not engage in um you know in conspiracy theorizing, which involves you know kind of inferring things that we can't see. Yeah. I think there is a reality of small groups of people who are manipulating our institutions and working in a coordinated fashion and there's no theory there and the fact that they happen to be in a sense conspiring really doesn't for me it's not so much a conspiracy theory as it is a function of very entrenched power structures and mm. groups of people in lobbies which have really been working on this for, for a long time and, and are now in in a situation where they're able to exert a lot more power and control. So this isn't conspiracy theory. This is really just a very sober kind of diagnosis of the current state of democracy.
0: Yeah. Um. Finally, you'll be working on a number of things, uh, much of the specifics of which will be hush-hush, but can you give our listeners a a steer on what story is about to blow up that is not really on the radar right now? Well, I'm,
1: I've am i been doing a lot more work on mapping the way in which the government is responding to outbreaks. And one of the things I think that I found a little bit interesting and, and I wasn't sure what was going on was the pattern of responses which appeared to be, let's let's do local lockdowns. And let's continuously do local lockdowns in areas where there's lots of ethnic minorities. And I wanted to find out whether, you know, of course, there is an issue around the fact that minorities are particularly vulnerable for all sorts of reasons, um, yeah, disease,
0: larger households, more intergenerational households, exactly. Cultural norms that involve more touching and hugging.
1: Yes, I mean, there's all sorts of issues. But one of the other things I noticed was that there were lots of areas, when I had a quick glance at some of the data, there were actually lots of areas where there were huge outbreaks which were not involving ethnic minorities, but there were no local lockdowns. Um, So I wanted to investigate that and to find out whether, in fact, the government was implementing a slightly racialized approach in the way it was um, implementing its lockdown strategy.
0: So hopefully I'll have more to report on that soon. That sounds very good. Nafis Ahmed, um, I feel much better informed for our conversation. And as always, the better informed I get, the angrier I get. So thank you for that, I guess. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily every Monday Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and please support us if you can on the funding platform Patreon where you can search for The Bunker Podcast. Full Bunker tomorrow and The Dailies will return on Thursday. Stay socially distant but emotionally available. This is Alexandro from The Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker is presented by Alex Andrei and produced by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producer with Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Robin Lemo. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.